Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health features industry guests and panelists who explore topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, Vynamic's healthcare industry advisor. On this episode, we are looking at the topic of social determinants and financial health. While social determinants of health has emerged as a topic of significant discussion in the healthcare industry, an interesting intersection with financial health has not frequented as many discussions, and we wanted to address it on this episode. To help us unpack this topic, we are joined by friend of Dynamic, Peter Rubenstein, founder of About Financial Health and a financial health innovator, to better understand the importance and the challenges of this topic. With an extensive background in the financial health field and a history of creating innovative and impactful solutions, Peter's approach has helped thousands of low-income families improve their financial health. Known as a creative yet practical thought leader in the field of financial health, Peter has been involved in groundbreaking national projects that set the standard for this very necessary intervention. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Peter, can you tell us a little bit about your company and the innovative financial health services that you offer? Sure. Thanks, Mindy. About Financial Health, my company operates the My Budget Coach online coaching platform, which is used by financial coaches to improve the financial health of low and moderate income adults. I created My Budget Coach in 2011, along with a group of amazing financial health practitioners. My Budget Coach combines just-in-time financial education content with practical financial management tools that allow low and moderate income folks to set and track financial goals, things such as saving for an emergency or paying off medical debt, and helps them build better longer-term financial habits through coaching. And thousands of adults, as you mentioned, have used My Budget Coach through nearly 200 nonprofit organizations, colleges and universities, and government agencies in the US and South Africa. Now, I think it's important to make the point that My Budget Coach allows coaches to work with clients remotely. So many things, as we all know, can make meeting in person difficult. Childcare responsibilities, transportation issues, work, life. Research conducted by the University of Wisconsin indicates that My Budget Coach outcomes are equally as good for clients working remotely versus in person. And currently, about two-thirds of all My Budget Coach coach client meetings are delivered remotely. So let's take a very quick look at how My Budget Coach helps improve financial health based on data collected at program intake versus program completion. So we've seen a 52% increase in the number of MyBC users earning more than they spent living within their means. A 32% decrease in the number of users paying late fees. And I'm very, very excited to report that My Budget Coach users have used the platform to increase savings and decrease debt, a combined total of almost $2 million. Wow. And I can even share with you uh, some great new data from Women's Way, a Philadelphia-based uh, organization that's using My Budget Coach as part of their Women's Economic Security Initiative. They've been using My Budget Coach for a bit over a year, 
and reported that in the first year of the, of the program, their participants saved an average of $3,000 and paid off debt around $2,000 worth. These outcomes are truly phenomenal, and I want to give a shout out to Women's Way because they are kicking it. In addition to my budget coach, I'm also doing more work helping a variety of different types of organizations figure out ways they can improve the financial health of their constituents, and more on that later. At this point, I think it would be helpful if I gave a financial health a more formal definition, and there are many to choose from. I happen to like the definition provided by the Financial Health Network, a national nonprofit and leader in the financial health field. According to their definition, individuals are financially healthy if they spend less than their income, pay bills on time, have sufficient long and short-term savings, have manageable debt, have appropriate insurance, and plan ahead financially, which can mean simply having a budget all the way to working with a financial advisor. With that definition in mind, let me describe the current state of adult financial health in the US. Not many Americans are actually financially healthy, with only 30% meeting that definition. The balance are living on the financial edge or are considered financially vulnerable. Now, people at all income levels can have poor financial health. However, households with incomes under 30,000 are uh, the least financially healthy. For better or worse, financial health can change considerably from year to year with changes in employment and physical health making the biggest positive and negative impacts. And even with employment rates at historic lows, 40% of Americans would struggle to cover a $400 unexpected expense, which can often be a medical bill. Mm -hmm. Right. It's really incredible. I mean, it's an area that has really not been surfaced, right, in terms of when we talk about social determinants, when we talk about healthcare in general, but it makes so much sense. Um, I'm curious, in the time that you've been managing and operating My Budget Coach, what are some of the biggest takeaways from this experience that you've had? So I've seen firsthand that financial coaching works. Coaching can improve financial health, and there is research that supports that. Coaches create relationships with, with those they coach, and those relationships include accountability. That accountability is used by coaches to change financial habits. Unlike, say, an athletic coach, financial coaches traditionally don't tell people what to do. Instead, they support those they coach to identify and achieve their own goals. Now, I'm less of a traditionalist on this and believe that in the right situations, it is the duty of a qualified financial coach to provide basic financial advice. But too often, I found that coaches in the field are poorly trained and insufficiently supported by the organizations they work or volunteer for. And those organizations are very often vastly under-resourced, and it's safe to say, perhaps not operating as efficiently as possible. Coaches must be properly vetted and trained to ensure that they are fit to be a coach and have the knowledge required to competently provide basic financial advice when needed. I've also seen that 
financial education in general is, well, sort of broken. Financial education, which focuses on teaching people about our modern financial system and financial management methods, is not in and of itself the solution to improve financial health. There is little data that shows that financial education alone improves financial health for adults, especially when it's delivered outside the context of a bona fide crisis or when someone's considering a major financially oriented de uh, decision. There's even less data that shows that financial education delivered in schools to kids has any impact whatsoever on their future financial health as adults. From what I and many others have seen in the field, low and moderate income families generally do not have poor financial health because they, quote, aren't good with money. When it comes to managing their short-term finances, these families are some of the most resourceful and creative folks you will ever meet. They just need better tools, better products and services to plan better and over the longer term. So to help people achieve and maintain financial health, they need access to easy to use, no or low fee financial products and services. They need access to competent and ethical financial coaching and advice when they're facing a major financial decision or they're in crisis. And these products and services should be embedded into as many everyday points of contact to ensure easy and timely access. That's really incredible. Peter, one of the things that you mentioned um, a little bit earlier was the idea that if somebody is hit with a surprise bill, and then, you know, oftentimes it could be a medical bill, um, that that's typically what, what would throw somebody over the edge. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the healthcare circles around the idea of um, how, you, how you address social determinants of health as a way to help mitigate some of those those needs for healthcare services that could actually upend somebody's budget. So can you talk to me a little bit about how financial health actually intersects with this concept of social determinants? Sure. So there's a really well-established direct relationship. And research clearly shows that poor financial health can lead to poor mental and or physical health. Um, a review of existing research by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation found that people with greater wealth generally live longer and have lower rates of chronic disease throughout life. And their review continues to show that the difference exists not just when looking at the high and low ends of the wealth spectrum. Incremental increases in wealth and income generally correspond with incremental improvements to their health. The report also shows that while poor health can certainly influence income and wealth, there is much evidence that shows that both wealth and income strongly affect health. Another study, which was done by the American Psychological Association, asked people to identify their major source of stress. And 69% of Americans identified money as that source of stress, making it the number one major stressor. It's important to note that financial stress tends to be different from other stress in that it is unrelenting and often requires years for people to fully address the root cause. According to the APA study, stress related to financial health 
is linked to conditions like insomnia, heart attacks, increased risk of developing diabetes, anxiety, and depression. And of course, those health conditions can drastically increase medical expenses, which depletes savings and increases debt. This cruel cycle continues when stress-related health conditions limit one's ability to work or go to school, further eroding a family's or individual's ability to improve their financial health. And finally, to illustrate the interconnectedness of the social determinants, our financial health can impact where we live, and where we live makes an enormous difference in our access to things like good employment opportunities, quality education, safe neighborhoods with affordable housing, and healthy food. Such a good point. I mean, such a, it's interesting when you, when you actually tie it together like that, it makes so much sense. Um, I'm wondering, from your perspective, is there evidence that supports the need for healthcare systems such as like providers or you know, health insurance companies and others to provide access to programs that support financial health? Like, What's the opportunity for them to get involved in this? Definitely. So aside from what I've already mentioned, let me bring up a few relevant case studies and some really interesting research that supports that need. So the first thing I'll mention is uh, a pilot program created at Creighton University in Nebraska that was aimed at low-income single mothers who were at greater risk for cardiovascular and chronic disease because of lifestyle and stress often brought on by poverty. The program, which combined uh, one-on-one coaching and group work over a two-year period, had the goal of improving physical health by improving financial health and decreasing financial stress. The Creighton program reached over 800 women, 48% of which significantly reduced their risk of developing chronic diseases, such as diabetes, by losing weight and lowering their blood pressure. And they did this by tackling their financial stress, using coaches to encourage and hold participants accountable. Now, there's a really interesting study out of Emory University that researched the link between the Earned Income Tax Credit, EITC, and pediatric head trauma. For those that don't know, the federal EITC is a refundable tax credit for lower income working people. Individuals or couples with children stand to benefit the most from EITC, which can bring them a refund in excess of $6,000, quite a substantial boost to their income. Previous studies have shown that increases in income are specifically tied with a reduction in risk factors for child maltreatment, such as poverty, maternal stress, and depression. The Emory study, however, sought to close the loop by examining the direct correlation of EITC refunds with hospital admissions for abusive head trauma, moving beyond the previous studies that showed an indirect link. Their study shows that in states where EITC refunds increased, there was at the same time a corresponding decrease in hospital admissions for pediatric head trauma. Wow. These examples demonstrate that programs primarily designed to improve financial health can also directly or indirectly and significantly improve physical and or mental health, decreasing the need for expensive emergency 
or long-term medical treatment to address acute medical issues or fight chronic disease. Now, I'm sure many people in the audience are wondering how those in the healthcare field can use all this information to implement common sense programs that begin to address the financial health of their patients. And here are some quick ideas. While many already do, every hospital and health clinic should house a volunteer income tax assistance site, a VITA site, at tax time to increase access uh, to free filing for patients and other members of the community. VITA eliminates the need for most low and moderate income tax filers to pay for expensive tax prep service. Wouldn't it be great if every obstetrician and pediatrician's office had information about childhood savings accounts and their staff could guide new parents through the process of actually opening the account? Community health workers can be provided with financial coaching training and make financial health assessments a regular part of their job. Organizations and individual providers lacking the resources to offer financial health programs directly can form partnerships with proven community-based organizations that offer high-quality services that measurably improve financial health. So, Peter, for those in the healthcare field while we're talking about it, I think it can be difficult to sort through um, and credibly evaluate the many local and national programs and services that address social needs of their patients. Where would you suggest a health system or a provider start if they wanted to find out more about offering financial health services to their patients? Yeah, uh, definitely a great question. So there are some good national, regional, and local resources out there that can be helpful, but it's also really important to have a good guide as you work through the process. My company, About Financial Health, can help organizations evaluate options and even develop plans to implement effective financial health programs. You can go ahead and take a look at our website at aboutfinancialhealth.com and feel free to email me at peter at aboutfinancialhealth.com for more information. There have been articles that I've read along the way around the topic of the intersection between social determinants and financial health, but um, having you here to really kind of bring it to life um, was really enlightening. So thank you for spending the time with us today on Trending Health to help us unpack this topic, and I hope we can have you back at a later date to talk more in depth about this as it progresses. Thank you, Mindy. There really are a lot of angles to cover this from, so um, I appreciate this. Thank you. That was a really interesting interview from Peter, and we are going to take a different perspective on health. So gang, I wanted to talk about the interview with Peter and this concept of financial health and how it really ties into overall health. And to recap what we heard, I'm joined by my colleagues and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel, who's our provider sector advisor. Hello, everybody. And Sam Katz, who's a manager with a background in public health. Hey there, Mindy. And Mike Catone, who's a director at Dynamics. Hey, Mindy. So when I think about the interview with Peter, I think the one thing that really struck me by the discussion on financial health across America was when he mentioned that only 30% of Americans meet the definition of financial health and that 40% of Americans would struggle to cover even a $400 unexpected expense, such as a medical bill. What are your thoughts on how these types of numbers impact patient health and the overall healthcare system? 
So the the first thing that I thought about was how this finding aligns with outcomes from uh, the Oregon Medicaid experiment and the subsequent findings from states who expanded Medicaid following the passage of the ACA in 2010, um, which, as an aside, I can't believe was almost 10 years ago now. Um, it's kind of amazing, yeah. Essentially, one of the key findings was that, lo and behold, providing Medicaid coverage to individuals who were previously unemployed resulted in increased utilization of the healthcare system and a corresponding decrease in financial strain from those medical expenses. And this is great news. We want a healthcare system where individuals, especially low-income individuals, aren't considering potential financial burden of health expenses when they seek medical care. And indeed, a follow-up study in 2019, this year, found an association between Medicaid expansion and a reduction in poverty for over 700,000 Americans. Um, so it was, it was really nice to hear um, that Medicaid expansion is leading to uh, decreased financial strain in these individuals. What was really interesting to me was when Peter talked about the families that he works with and that these organizations work with uh, are actually really financially savvy in the short term and are able to make ends meet on a very limited budget. And when I thought about how that might impact their ability to cover a, a large expense, even something like $400, it, it might not seem huge for a lot of people, but someone who is really budgeting down to the last dollar uh, from a month-to-month -month basis, um, if they have an unexpected medical expense, uh, you know, even if you know the price of the prescription medicine went up, let's say it doubled from $15 a month to $30 a month, if they've only got $15 on the budget, they might skip a month on refills. And I think that that type of, I guess, pushing care away from the central problem of your life and the central problem of you know these individuals' lives is having enough money to make ends meet. If y you think you can do half as much by cutting your medication in half or only refilling uh, every two months instead of every month, if that's the thing that makes your notepad line up at the end of the month, you're probably going to do that because you're not going to take food off the table. You're not going to stop paying rent. You're going to do these things that have a m more immediate tangible impact, like being hungry or being evicted, and not necessarily focus on the things where the impact might be weeks, months, years down the road. I think that's a great call, uh, Mike and, and Sam. And I think that's the paradox of all of this. We talk a lot about paradoxes here and the paradox of healthcare in the United States. But I think that <coughs> that idea of four out of 10 people are not able to cover a $400 expense. So, you know, I walk that through in a scenario where uh, they're, they're a family is thrust at a bill upon themselves of $400 and then they decide that they really can't afford that, the next time they need to make a decision on healthcare, they're probably gonna not make it on going to the hospital or they're gonna do something a little differently. And the paradox is not seeking medical treatment creates more health maladies and, and disease and it just is a snowball effect. And on the other side, on kind of the supply side, uh, you know, the idea of folks uh, that suffer poverty that are going to health systems and health systems that are um, the destination of these uh, folks that are, that are seeking medical treatment that can't handle the cost, you know, they're in financial despair as well. And we're seeing that, you know, in Philadelphia and other cities where hospitals that treat these patients are suffering financially as well. So it's this, it's this cycle that, um, you know, I'm hopefully hopeful that the social determinants of health that we've been talking about are these programs that has really grown. And, you know, I think we, we, I saw a study that social determinants of health 
from a health system perspective have grown tenfold in the last 10 to 15 years. So, you know, although it was a dismal conversation we've started off with, there's some hope as well. And I thought what was so interesting is when Peter and I first started talking, right, he was he was talking about the traditional view that we have of social determinants of health and then really trying to tie in, right, how financial health really should be, co- be considered a social determinant of health because it is really the root cause of a lot of, of issues that tie into to, um, other aspects of social determinants. So I want to pull our conversation out and talk actually just even more broadly about this idea of social determinants of health. Um, Ryan, you mentioned it just now that there's an increasing kind of focus on it. How do you see the healthcare market and practice starting to shift its, shift its focus to address what some of these underlying factors are, whether it's housing, whether it's you know food deserts um, or food insecurity or even things like financial health? Yeah, so one important trend that I'd like to mention, just piggybacking off of what you just said, Mindy, um, is housing. And the, you know, I come from a housing background um, at the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers. I'd be remiss not to give them a little plug here. Do great work in Camden um, in working, developing housing units and providing housing to complex individuals. Um, but we're seeing this across the country uh, as well. The direct investment by large healthcare systems and payers alike um, into the actual development of affordable housing units. Um, without going into too much detail on the connection between housing and homelessness, I think it's probably pretty obvious to most of our listeners um, that housing instability and literal homelessness are detrimental to an individual's health. Um, it's also uh, incredibly costly for hospitals um, to essentially house individuals that cannot be safely discharged into the community. Um, I think this is one of those win-win situations where some healthcare systems have taken matters into their own hands. Um, and there's a few that I'd specifically like to call out here. So uh, Kaiser Permanente, um, the, the uh, wonderful healthcare, integrated healthcare system on the West Coast, recently announced a $200 million investment towards addressing housing insecurity, um, which includes pr- literally purchasing buildings in areas that are ripe for gentrification um, and working with other community partners on funding um, the development of additional affordable housing units uh, for their complex patient populations. This is happening in cities across America. Denver, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Boston have also committed, have hospitals, large safety net hospitals that have uh, contributed significant capital towards securing um, additional housing units for their vulnerable patient populations. And United uh, Health Group is actually out in front in terms of uh, payers, and they've de- uh, developed, they've invested $400 million over the past several years, literally building housings across the country for some of their most vulnerable um, patients. One more quick plug here. Um, Brian, you mentioned, or actually I think it was Yucatone mentioned the, the, that individuals will put money towards, you know, not being evicted as opposed to you know their their pharmaceuticals it's kind of the short-term needs i i really think that mandatory reading for um administrators in large safety net healthcare systems should be matthew desmond's evicted which is um and kind of a brutal and eye-opening account of what this looks like to individuals it's set in milwaukee um which is you know has a, a high instance of poverty and really lets you understand um, the decision-making processes that these individuals go through on a day-to-day basis. You know, I, I think of that's a great foundational topic, the idea of housing. I think it, start, it starts with there, and I think it's so fascinating and fantastic you bring up that foundation. There's also, you know, a, a little bit of a twist. I, I was thinking about, as you mentioned housing and you mentioned individuals, you know, one of the things that I think 
the healthcare industry will have to do moving forward from a from a social determinants of health perspective is change the paradigm of the way we think about this because I think you know America's history around rugged individualism mm -hmm. and the idea that um, housing and uh, and these social determinants, fresh food, are are things that are easily attainable for folks, whether it's in urban or rural settings, is just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of the population, I think um, our local CEO here at Jefferson, Stephen Clasco, has said it's not really about um, your genetic code, it's about your zip code many times. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a piece of this puzzle too. So I think the more we talk about it, the more we have conversations about it, um, and it starts with housing, I think it's a really good, really good call out. And that's where it made so much sense to me. Actually, when we were having this discussion with Peter, when you start to talk about housing and the need for food or the ability to have you know, um, access to fresh water and transportation. I mean, really, we talk about uh, healthcare literacy a lot, but financial literacy mm -hmm. actually becomes equally important, mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with like very limited resources. Uh, and I thought the the idea of Peter's company's My Budget Coach, right, and um, really trying to help individuals that usually are li living in some cases, dollar to dollar, become much more educated on how to budget, how to to use their money and stretch their money wisely, and then even how to start getting into um, a bit of a savings mindset. Uh, it just made so much sense to me that if you're going to deal with um, some of these aspects of social determinants of health, then why not pull in the financial health aspect of it as well? Yeah. And I, I think I kind of want to call back to um, – when Peter talked again about that savviness, and I, I, that point really stuck stuck out with me, Agreed. Um, because I think one of the one of the classic sort of misunderstandings when you talk about financial literacy and financial health um, with folks who are lower income um, is that it's some result of their behavior or decision making, and I think so much of this has to do with the fact that. It's not easy to be a what you know economists call low skill worker, especially in an urban area where there are a lot of high skill workers and rents have risen dramatically over the past two decades. Um, it's not easy to live in those areas and make ends meet. And I think financial coaching is really important, but I think there are some fundamental kind of root causes behind that because all the financial coaching in the world isn't going to raise your wage. That's true. All the financial coaching in the world isn't going to lower your rent. And I think that those are bigger, more difficult societal problems to solve. But I think looking looking myopically only at how individuals manage their finances is only part of the puzzle. And a broader examination of what we in this country determine is an acceptable way to have people go through this life and live this life. Um, that's something that's a responsibility that we all have. And as you know, the hollowing out of the middle class is, you know, something that politicians talk about a lot, but I think that even more so than the hollowing out of the middle class is sort of that disappearance in the public mindset of the lower and lower portions of the middle class and just kind of a disregard for the way that that life is lived. I think a great example of that is the fact that there's no zip code in the entire country 
where a minimum wage job can rent a two bedroom apartment. And that just like nuts and bolts, that means it's impossible to live on minimum wage if you're a single parent household. And maybe you can do it if there are two wage earners in the household, maybe. But I, that's just that's such that's so core to it um, that I'm curious about how we can marry kind of that individual coaching to examining the broader kind of societal structures that have caused people to be living, you know, in, with this type of poverty. Yeah, and I think it's also a policy discussion too, right? And I, I think you bring up such an interesting point there, and I'm going to just throw it out there. So when you think about some of the roles that providers have started to step into, and in some cases, right, health plans, especially when it comes to housing, um, tell me a little bit about what you think providers' appetite or the healthcare industry overall, what what healthcare organizations' appetites are for actually starting to implement programs that f- focus on things like financial health? Well, it's a great question, Mindy, and I'm anxious to hear what Sam has to say about this as well, but I think that outcomes comes to mind. You know, I think that when you have programs that can prove out uh, common outcomes that help a health system's financial health, you're going to see maybe a more revolutionary movement to this. And I referenced, we were talking earlier about the program called Impact at the University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, they've tested some, some randomized trials and they've seen hospital day usage go down based on this social determinants of health-based community program. And I think when you start to see tangible, tactical kind of improvements there, you're going to see a, a STEM change. And I find it interesting, the, the, the head of that stated that, <coughs> and it's kind of going back to what Mike mentioned about poverty, it's actually, in a in weird way, easier to treat cancer and heart disease than it is to treat poverty. Oh, yeah. And so I think health systems are really struggling with that. And um, you have these great, creative, innovative minds that are starting to build out some outcome-based programs that should really change the paradigm. Yeah, for sure, Ryan. It's uh, it's an uphill battle, and in 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 some sense, it's it's almost unfortunate that these large structural issues are falling to the healthcare system. It's great in the fact that now large providers and payers are starting to throw their hat in the ring and really try to understand what whole person care means. But these are structural issues, to to your point, Catone, that need like serious policy um, solutioning as well. Um, But I think, Brian, going back to your point, um, as we see more and more value-based contracting, right? The shift from fee-for-service to value-based contracting to paying for outcomes on a population health level, this is really lighting a fire under the butts of a lot of uh, payer and provider systems um, to address the, the whole person, right? Not, not, they're not really focused on just de- uh, delivering excellent point-of-care health delivery, but they're really focused on how do we integrate community health workers and just call out to Treya Kangovi, who's who's running um, Project in- Impact at Penn, making sure we plug her name in there. Yes. Um, fantastic work. Thank you. I got you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and similar programs that are sprouting up uh, across the country. And again, I want to plug my previous employer, the Camden Coalition. They actually run this uh, national organization called the National Center for Complex Health and Social Needs, which is, which is essentially um, bringing together a lot of these, um, I would say, innovators across the country that are... Standing up programs within hospital systems 
linking with community-based partners in an effort to really discover what best practices are and like how can we start to scale some of these solutions um, that we're seeing, such as Project Impact at Penn. Mm -hmm. I just want to add one more thing to this topic because I think it's so important around health systems. When we think when we think about social determinants of health, at least you know as the four of us discuss this, I would argue that a lot of us default to the urban setting, and that's where our head and hearts go. Uh, there, there's a real problem in the United States around rural poverty and the rural social determinants of health, and so I think that we have to think a little more holistically about this in the future. You know, um, health systems like Geisinger uh, are are doing pharmacy fresh food pharmacies where they're delivering 10,000 meals a year of fresh foods and it's kind of like that idea of meals on wheels times 10 where they're delivering fresh whole foods to folks and you know there there are areas of the country where there's a two to three hour ride to a health system or a hospital and and we can't forget that as well so there's there's a there's a macro level issue here that exists in the united states that i think you know we're chipping away at little by little i think this change from fee-for-service to outcomes-based healthcare is I would say um, a secondary or tertiary benefit of all this, but it's rising quickly. And I think it's important to mention that. And I also think that the focus on just overall population health, I mean, we have seen it emerge, right, as a front runner in terms of where healthcare organizations are placing some of their bets and, and placing some of their attention. Um, as we've been talking, right, we've been talking about providers and health plans. I'm wondering, Mike, from your perspective, any thoughts on what, what the opportunity is for life sciences to potentially play a role in all of this? I mean, I know they have patient assistance programs, right? And they also offer copay cards mm -hmm. and, and those types of um, uh, programs that help individuals offset some of the cost of, of care. Any other thoughts? I mean, they are data. When you think about the amount of data they have and understanding like patient journeys mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, to be honest, I think the best way that life sciences companies may be able to impact this problem is to use their existing relationships with patient advocacy groups um, that many of them have to um, share what they know about patients. Um, and because I think, you know, a, a lot of the times what life sciences companies are looking for when they work with patient advocacy groups is access to these patients to really understand the disease state, how it affects the patients. Um, and I think if the patient advocacy groups, maybe they have more information about how the patient's financial state affects the disease state. And life sciences companies may have more information about how their clinical data affects their disease state. I think working with those advocacy groups, um, they could start to form a more holistic view of the patient and then understand at what point on those patient journeys that they've paid a lot of money to research and plot out, understand what point on those patient journeys um, you could go in and coach them on financial literacy or offer help um, or point to services like My Budget Coach. I, I think that's, that's the best way for them to get involved um, because I don't think – I think a lot of companies – generally, and I know that I've seen this a lot in life sciences, and I'm sure other folks have seen this in other sectors. A lot of companies try to throw additional products at people to solve problems. Um, and a lot of the time, a new product is not the thing that a patient needs. Um, they might just need a prodding move to existing resources or a prompt to utilize something that's offered by a patient advocacy group or something that's offered by their insurance company. Um, and I, I think by examining 
the whole patient and understanding where they can make the most impact, that's the way that a life sciences company could have uh, a positive impact in this in this situation. I mean, no doubt about it. This topic in general, I mean, we could talk about it all day. Actually, we probably will continue to talk about it. It feels like there's just so much opportunity from a cross-sector mm-hmm. perspective to really play a much more significant role in helping to pull like the health and the wealth aspect together, but also overlaying the policy piece of it to really generate some some significant change. And I think this challenge is um, unique because in the incentives of all of the players are aligned in this challenge. In raising the financial health of patients, you get lower utilization of emergency services, you get higher medication adherence, you get better savings and ability to pay bills. So you sort of have, you have a win to the nth degree scenario if you can help these patients um, and these people have a healthier financial um, standing in life. That being said, I think there are still a lot of large societal structures that prevent that from being totally realized. So I think that if if it were realized, everyone that we just talked about, payers, providers, life sciences companies, all of those players would benefit from a healthier finance from a financially healthier population. Um, but I don't think individual coaching alone is the way to do that. And there are broader societal issues that kind of need to be tackled. Right. It's it's one piece of the puzzle. Right. right. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast, and to explore if Binamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit TrendingHealth.com. Tune in to the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.